0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for faith and life. I'm Tony, and today is episode 82 of the podcast, and we're going to dive into the topic of Advent. I get to sit down with my dear friend, uh, fellow pastor and author, Andrew Thompson, as we talk about his new book, Watching from the Walls. It's all about why hope is an expectation, how prayer and discussion and uh, getting into this idea about what it means to prepare for the celebration of Advent. I love the conversation. It is a deep dive with Andrew. He is such a gifted and anointed pastor and scholar and really a friend. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation so much. And if you do the best compliment you can give us, leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, It really does make a huge difference. And please do me a favor, Uh, Share this episode with a friend if you found it meaningful and if you really, really appreciated uh, what Andrew had to say. Without any further ado, let's jump into Advent with my dear friend, Andrew Thompson. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited today to have a dear friend of mine all the way from Arkansas, Andrew Thompson, pastor, author, extraordinaire. Andrew, how are you? Doing great, Tony. It's uh, uh, really wonderful to be on. I appreciate the invitation. Well, listen, uh, you and I have now known each other for probably three or or four years and we first met in Cuba. Yes, we did. Uh, so I thought I'd start with, um, asking you the question, what you've been to Cuba. How many times now? Three times. Three times. What's your best Cuba story and will you tell it for us? Oh,
1: goodness. Wow. Uh, right right out of the gate. I came swinging. Right. best (laughs) Cuba story. Um, what would be the best Cuba story? That's okay. I, I've got one. Um, and, uh, I think this was the trip that I was on with you, which was the, um, was it maybe the first trip? Um, the first trip that I went on was the trip yeah. with you. And, um, I, you know, one of the things about it, when you, when you go down there with our friend David Watson, um, it's you. You get a if you're a pastor, you get a preaching slot. That's one of the yeah. things that our Cuban guests are very, very generous with, is their pulpit, and they they want you know they. I really think that they, um, I, I consider it to be a real apostolic form of mission. Hmm. Uh, they assume. I, I think our Cuban friends assume that we're there because the Lord has sent us, because the Holy Spirit has anointed us for that mission work, and it's really a. I think of a Pauline mission, a, a mission like the kind of mission work you see in the Book of Acts with the Apostle Paul, where the the mission work is about the body of Christ coming together from from different areas. I mean, we mm. are br- we are bringing the church where we're from to the church where they are, and they take that very seriously. They sure, take yeah. they take the idea that we are there um, at the behest of the Holy Spirit and with a word from the Lord to share with them. Um, and so they open up their pulpits to, to us and they want us there, um, you know, preaching. They want us there engaged in the work of prayer and in the laying on of hands and of pronouncing words of healing. And, and so, um, it, as you know, it can be a very daunting thing because I, it's the Methodist church, but it's, um, it's, it, it, it's, it's Methodism with some pretty heavy Pentecostal inflections to it. Yeah, um, and and for me, it's been very exciting because I I have found myself more and more open to the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in my own life, um, and that's a kind of spirituality that I've been increasingly drawn to over the past few years. But you know, down in Cuba, they take in the Holy Spirit with their mother's milk, and so the 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 type of the type of worship that you experience is very charismatic. It's very yeah. so it's many very trumpets. It's trumpets and dancing and ribbons and, and lots of instruments and, uh, services that go on half the day and things like that. And so when you actually stand up to preach, particularly if you're not going to preach in Spanish and I do not preach in Spanish, I'm not that confident in my Spanish, then, um, it's, there's just a lot of, um, I, I don't know. There's a lot, of, it's a little intimidating, I guess. Is yeah. Well, I was invited to preach at a church called Santiago de la Vega. And we went there that night, and we we got there a little bit late, as we usually are when we're traveling around uh, in in a in a bus um, around Havana. And we got to Santiago de la Vega, and we started to go in. And I actually thought there was something wrong because there were so many people outside the church. I thought, was there mm. something? There's something going on in the church. They were outside the churchyard because the church was so full that um, people couldn't get in and we went in and of course as the guests they had a place of honor for us up on the front row and we started to worship and and we worshiped for probably 45 minutes or an hour and then it came time to preach and i was invited to um to go up on uh, up onto the chancel with my translator and i i got up and i, I said a quick prayer under my breath and i, I looked out and they the people were so packed, they were shoulder to shoulder and they were, the the balcony was completely full to the point where people were almost hanging over the front ba- banister of the balcony. And, um, and the, it was, it's January. So it's, it's winter, but you know, January in Havana is going to be in the eighties probably. Right, so right. Um, you know, it was hot and the doors and the windows were open and there were, people that had been outside and could not get in, who were literally hanging in the window and through the door, sticking their heads in the doors just so they could hear through the bars, right? Weren't there bars on their windows? I don't remember if there were bars It may have been, but I I just remember looking out at the windows and seeing the faces pressed up, Mm. you know, to the, in, in, in the windows. And the same way with the doors, just people crowded around the open doors looking in and obviously These were people almost entirely who had gotten to church on foot that night and probably some of them from a fair distance away. And they were going to be going home in the dark. And um, and they were and they were there because they were hungry for the Lord. Mm. You know, they were hungry for the word of life. And um, and I sat there and I realized that um, that God was asking me to speak his word that night. And it was so incredibly humbling. I mean it was just um, I felt unequal to the task, but at the same time, um, I found uh, that the joy of, and the joy and the energy of the Holy Spirit uh, were filling me up. And it was one of the most uh, humbling yet also wonderful preaching experiences that I have um, ever had. Um, and I just, I, when I think about Cuba and when I think about how badly I want the Holy Spirit to bring revival into our own land and into our own churches, um, Tony, my, my, the image that is always in my mind is the image of standing on the chancel at Santiago de la Vega and looking out at all of these faces and thinking, Lord, I don't know why you've brought me here, but I just want to, I just want to preach your word tonight. So that was, you know, you, you said your favorite Cuba story. That's one of them. I'll put it that way. That's sure, one of my favorite yeah. Cuba stories. There, there have been a lot.
0: I um, a lot. I love that imagery. And one of the questions that I always wrestle with, and I'd be anxious to get your opinion on it, is uh, why aren't American churches like that? Like why? Um, how how come we've lost that? And and this is obviously a big question that you can't even fairly answer. But I'm going to ask it anyway. You, you know what what what's the difference between a church like that and um and and most American churches in terms of
1: where did the hunger go yeah that's a great question and i think it's a it's a complicated question and i think it probably has a complicated answer um i um I will tell you uh, I'll give you an example that I used to use I, I used to teach in a seminary in Midtown Memphis I was a taught church history and, and Wesleyan studies. And um, I'll tell you a, a, an illustration that I used to use with my students when we would cover the period of early American Methodism. If you look at um, the formation of the, Me- of the Methodist Church in America it happened in 1784, the year after the Revolutionary War officially ended. And um, by the early 1790s, you had the beginnings of the um, real powerful revivalism happened. And then around the turn of the 19th century, a little after the turn of the 19th century, you had the full development of camp meetings, Mm -hmm. uh, which themselves were something of an outgrowth of the old Methodist quarterly meeting when the whole circuit would come together once a quarter. And uh, before you knew it, uh, you had this form of charismatic um, dynamic spirituality that caused the Methodist church to, very quickly become the largest expression of Christianity in uh, North America, and As a camp meeting would be like a like a big revival, right? Like would be yeah. So so what you would have is you would have these spread out circuits in the, Amer- in the American frontier, and it, it, once you got away from the Northeast, okay, once you got away from New England and New York and Pennsylvania, you didn't have big cities very much, and you had smaller settlements, villages, towns, and hamlets. And um, the Methodist circuit system would set up where there would be, you know, you you might have a preaching station where you're expected to be here, and then a preaching station 25 miles away that you needed to be day after tomorrow, and then one, you know, 15 miles from there, and and you would you would preach at one, and then you go to the next one and preach there, and go to the next one and preach there, and you would be somewhere every single Sunday, and of course you'd be there in the middle of the week to go to prayer meetings and help to visit visit and lead class meetings and things like that. I might come behind you. So after you left one town, I might be the preacher who came in and there might be uh, a dozen of us that would be on this circuit, or there might be seven or eight of us on this circuit. And, and we would spend three months preaching around the circuit. Okay. Going Mm -hmm. place to place. And then after three months, once a quarter, in other words, um, our presiding elder for that, um, Circuit would call us all together in a place, and we would carry out the business of the church. We would talk about how many baptisms we had done. We would talk about how many people we had buried. We would um, we would uh, take up the or share the collections that we had taken up, and and then that would be a, a great celebration. And it was the kind of thing that attracted, it started attracting a lot of people. So they would come because you had all the preachers in one place Mm. and some preachers were known as really good and you wanted to hear them. And so people would take off and they would go and they would stay for two or nights or three nights or four nights. And eventually some, some of these meetings would last for an entire week and, um, they would have to camp. And so they called them camp meetings and, and those became, um, enormously spiritually powerful events and actually the kinds of things that you and I have experienced in Cuba, faith healings and um, extraordinary manifestations of the Holy Spirit in people's bodies and uh, within the uh, within the the time of worship the place of worship itself those types of things very similar ones showed up at camp meetings hmm. I mean it happened all the time and um so you get into this when you're teaching students of methodist history you get into this and you can read these accounts because all these preachers they were inveterate journal keepers and you can read you can read passages from their journals that are um just remarkable with what they're describing and um and i would talk to my students about this and i would say you know one of the things that's remarkable about it is that so many people would show up they would travel great distances just to get to the camp meeting, you know, and then they would pitch a tent and they would stay for four or five days. And it's kind of like people traveling those distances to get to Santiago de la Vega, to go to church that night in, in, uh, in, in Cuba. And, and I would say to my students, I'd say, so if you're, if you're coming in from the farm for a day's work and um, you open the door of your cabin, describe for me the technology that you see when you open the door of your cabin, describe the technology and they would think about it. And I've said, you know, say the year's 1810 or 1815. Well, uh, the technology is primarily fire driven. There's a fire in the fireplace and there's probably a big pot over it there where um, your wife has been cooking stew throughout the day or something like that. And, and then if you look at, if you ask the question, well, where's the information technology? You'd say, well, you know, there on the table, there's a King James Bible. Hmm. And, and if, if there's one book in the house, that's what it is. It's a, it's a version of, it's a King James version of the Bible. If there's a second book, it's probably a hymn book. It's probably a Methodist hymn book. And assuming that the people in the cabin are literate, then that's probably the books that are there. You know, that's probably it. Well, when that's the technology that you're dealing with, then, um, You a couple things. Number one, uh, the church doesn't have a lot of competition, right? Okay, and and number two, you don't have you have to rely on God because the material things that you're relying upon are scarce and are subject to Mm. dissipation, right? One bad crop, and you're at the verge of starvation. You know, so you are you you are um, led to rely more on the power of God because of that. That Tony is where I see a connection with our friends in Cuba. You, you, we have seen what what things are like there, and I don't know if if you remember when we were coming back, we had spent the night in Baradero, and we were coming back, and we stopped at a place. This was a time when. There were a lot of people that had gotten ill on the trip. Oh, sure. And and we stopped at a town where we ended up going to church that night there. We went and we ate in a restaurant. I remember. Yeah. Do, do you remember that that was, that was the one place that I went that I remember more than anywhere else that we saw more horse-drawn vehicles than we saw actual gas vehicles? You know, they were yeah. – now, they had tires on them. You know, they had, like, automobile tires on these wagons and buggies and things – but there were, it it, remi- it was like, I thought this is what walking through a town in the 1800s would be like. I remember there was like horse poop all over the roads, like it was everywhere. And the only place that you actually saw motorized vehicles was like the main drag coming into town. And there was a gas station where we had actually stopped. And once you got on all the little side roads and stuff, it was mostly horse-drawn vehicles and bicycles. There were bicycles, obviously, of course, too. And and so what the situation that our friends in Cuba have right now is they have a situation that is, that is ripe for revival because they are in an economic reality that causes them to need to rely on God because they don't have a lot of other things that can serve as crutches. All right. Go
0: ahead. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> that that's incredible. And and it it it's actually the perfect segue into this new piece of writing that you've got out watching the walls uh watching from the walls, excuse me. And and it's all about this idea of um of advent and hope and expectation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious and in, in just your kind of theological and just your pastoral opinion uh, with with covid and with the political tension and where we see ourselves in the world, do you feel like there's um a shift in the winds of of Christianity in America?
1: I would like to think that uh, it's, you know, I, I've had a lot of conversations with um, pastor friends, as well as with lay people, many members of my own congregation about the likelihood of that. I mean, I think the, the challenge that we face is one that transcends political division, economic recession, and COVID. Those, those are the three, you know, the, the unholy trinity, (laughs) the unholy trinity of 2020 has been political dissension or political, um, conflict, economic recession, and COVID, you know, Mm. um, and, and I think what we face that's a challenge that transcends all three of those is, is what I would, when I was, the same conversation I would have with my seminary students, I would, when I would talk them, talk them through what is the technology you see in 19th century cabin, I would say, now think about walking into your own living room this afternoon, tell me what the technology is that you see. Well, there's a 62 inch TV. There's a laptop. There's an iPad. There's a smartphone. I have an Apple watch, you know, screen, 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 screen. And these things, all these screens are clamoring for my attention. And they are, they're, they are all, they all tempt us uh, to kind of give ourselves over to a life of entertainment, to a life of consumption. And when we do that, you know, we we can enter into a kind of a spiritual haze. We It's not that our spiritual need goes away. It's that it's been numbed in the same way that a drug addict will have his senses numbed to the reality of, of his world. That's what technology does to us. It numbs us in that way. And um, you, you talked about, you know, talk about the challenges that we're facing this year. Um, I think I would hope that um, that these things would be catalysts for people to realize that we've got, we've got to search for something deeper. We've got to ask the hard questions about, about what is, what is this sickness? There's clearly a sickness in our world. And the sickness is not just about a presidential election. And the sickness is not just about the levels of unemployment. I mean, there is a, a deep and abiding spiritual sickness. And, and I would like to think that the the conflicts and the difficulties and the challenges that we've been facing would, would cause us to, um, to reach out for God, to, to ask God to come into our lives, to invite the Holy Spirit in, to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus. My worry is that we have so surrounded ourselves mm. with this technological accoutrement in our lives that um, despite the sickness, despite our recognition that things don't seem right, that we have these idols that we fill our houses with that, that keep us from getting down to the level that we need to get to. That may not be a very hopeful answer. I just, I'm trying to name the challenge that I think. Sure. We yeah. Well,
0: it, it leads me to the next question, right? Which is like, uh, so y- you know, you're obviously um, serving a, a fantastic church, you're you're working hard, you're writing, you're putting out lots of information you're you're in the thick of it, just like the rest of us. um how do you keep yourself from the spiritual sickness like what what are your practical disciplines? I love to try to get to like uh daily routines or the things that you do to make sure that because I, I mean, like as you s- said those things i'm I'm myself like, oh man, he is so right. like there are days where I could just get home and sit on my phone for and all of a sudden it's like Uh, do we remember to feed the kids? You know, like, I mean, like those are real concerns. How do you prevent yourself from getting into that spiritual sickness?
1: Yeah. Well, that, I think it all has to do with the discipline with which you approach the practice of the means of grace. Hmm. And, and, and I can tell you that a, um, there are a couple of cornerstone, uh, weekly practices that I have that I think help me stay on the right track. One of them is the uh, is the colleagueship and the friendship that I have with my fellow pastors here at our church it's i'm I'm one of four on our pastoral team and we meet together on a um on a weekly basis on Mondays and that um, clergy meeting we have a lot of things to go over that we have to go over the pastoral care needs of the church we have to go over uh, developments that are happening in our Committee leadership in the church, we we talk about staff-related issues, things like that. But we also just spend a lot of time in one another's company, and and you know, being able to be around that table where it's just the four of us, um, leaning on one another and sharing our concerns and our frustrations and our hopes. It is a a very important spiritual touchstone. So that would be one. the The second one is that I am a part of a clergy band. Uh, that's a a, a Wesleyan model of, uh, of an accountability group where a small group of people come together for the purpose of really confessing their sins before one another and praying for one another and offering God's absolution to one another. And, and then just praying, uh, for God to work in our lives generally. And I, I do that with four other pastors. Um, we do it on a video conference, much the way you and I are talking today. Um, because none of us live in the same town. I, there's two of us in Arkansas, uh, a friend of mine, Matthew Johnson, who lives just to the town to the north of me, and then two pastors in oklahoma and and one in Atlanta, Georgia. and so the the five of us gather on Wednesday mornings for a couple of hours uh, for that band meeting. and that that is a very important touchstone for me. Um, now, other than that, you know, it's my practice of prayer, my practice of the study of scripture, um, uh, spiritual disciplines this th- during covid I fasted more than I've ever fasted in my life. Yeah, no, that's good. Um but I I would I would be the first to tell you that um I don't stay on track all the time and I and the past 8 months have been the um the most not the most, because there was one period in my ministry that was even, believe it or not, even more difficult than this. But one of the most trying and difficult times in my twenty years of ministry uh, has been this year. And um particularly, I find myself and preachers get into this habit a lot. Um, maybe you can relate, but you know you really need to be studying you need to be reading the Bible devotionally over and above what you're studying for your weekly message. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I, the, the, my, where I know that I'm starting to slip is when I find that all of my study of scripture, I mean, I study scripture every week. Um, but when I find that I'm slipping into that habit of only studying scripture, for the purpose of preaching that Sunday. And I'm not just studying, I'm not also reading devotionally to feed my soul. That has happened to me again and again and again throughout COVID. And when it starts to happen, that's when I recognize that um, I need a course correction because um, that to me, that's a sign that my disciplines are starting to um, suffer a little bit.
0: Yeah, one of the things that we love to say around here is that if you're not dedicated to your disciplines, you'll be destroyed by your distractions. And so really? I, I really, really appreciate it. Can I write
1: that. that down? Please steal it. I'll, I'll steal yeah. it all you want. Yep. Um, I'm going to put that. That's You're going to show up in a sermon. If you're not dedicated to your discipline, you'll be destroyed your sexes. Reverend Tony Tony
0: Berger. <laughs> Take it, man. <laughs> uh, l- 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 listen, I feel like it's just one of those things that it, it's honestly, it's kind of the catalyst for this entire podcast is because so many of us are trying to follow Jesus and we get out of the discipline of the relationship and uh, I feel like we see it over and over again. And, and one of the things that I appreciate about this new resource you've got coming out is that it's it gives us the opportunity for a course correction should one of us need it, right? And so yeah. um, Advent and liturgical seasons, I now I grew up Catholic, so Advent is super meaningful to me. But I think that there are probably a lot of our friends who are listening who have no idea about what Advent is and why Advent is important as a liturgical season. And I was wondering if you might start there, you know, give us kind of the, uh, the, the 411 on Advent.
1: Sure. Well, there are, there are these two great seasons in the life of the church. And, and one of them is Advent that always happens in the month of December. The other one is Lent, Mm -hmm. which is a season that happens in the 40 days leading up to Easter. And it's no coincidence that our two great, uh, liturgical seasons happen before Christmas and Easter because those are the two highest holy days of the church year, and the reason for both of them, I'll say this, and then I'll speak specifically to Advent. The reason for both of those seasons is uh, meant to be an opportunity for believers to prepare themselves for the feast to come. Hmm. So Advent prepares us for the feast of Christmas, and Lent prepares us for the feast of Easter. And and why are those the two High Holy Days? Well, because one of them, Christmas, is about the incarnation of God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word incarnation means to take on flesh. And Christmas is about the fact that God condescended to us and actually took the form of a person whose name is Jesus, who was born to a woman named Mary, who had conceived by the power, directly by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God actually came into the world. And when he did, he brought the power of his divinity into human flesh. And that began to work like a divine chemotherapy against the cancer of our sin. Um, And so we we need a period of preparation for that. Easter, by the same token, Easter is, of course, that holy day where we celebrate the fact that death could not contain our Lord, but rather he was raised to new life on the third day after having been crucified. And that by the power of that resurrection, he has essentially torn the veil asunder between the holy of holies and the world. He has unleashed the power of his resurrection of the world and opened up the pathway for us to know eternal life through our own resurrection. Um, So that's the reason why when you think about the awesome significance of those two days, it makes sense that the church and her wisdom throughout the ages has seen it as right and fitting and good for us to have a period of spiritual preparation that leads up to them. And that's what those two seasons are about, both Lent and also Advent. Now, Advent, the word itself is this wonderful a Latin word, meaning a word that comes from the Latin language, and the word is to come or to arrive. The word means to arrive or to, to reach the point of or to come. And so what is Advent? It's the season of coming, and it's the season of God's coming into the world in Jesus. And we have four Sundays that we recognize that. Those the four Sundays prior to um, the the, the day of Christmas itself. Uh, I said, it's always in December. Oftentimes that first Sunday of Advent will actually be the last Sunday of November. I think that's what it is this year. Although. Yeah. I'm the not. 29th. Yeah. So 29th, this podcast
0: yeah. will be dropping on the 24th of November and then oh, okay. Advent will start the following Sunday.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it's the, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, which of course is always on December the 25th. And, um, you know, I, in this, this book that I've got this little book watching from the walls Um, I tell a couple of stories about what we would do in my family to get ready for Advent and or to get ready for Christmas. And one of them is that um, we my mother had a friend who made Advent calendars for us when we were little bitty. And if you've if you've never if your listeners out there have never heard of an Advent calendar, it's a it's a calendar that helps you keep track of of the days leading up to Christmas. And so there's a, a kind of an element of anticipation and expectation that's built into you going through the calendar. Ours were these big felt rectangular yes. uh, things that was handmade. We hung them on the wall. There were four kids in my family. And so we hung them on this one particular wall in our den. And they, um, they, there was in the middle of the big piece of of rectangular white felt. And When I say big, I mean, it was probably three feet tall. There was a big green Christmas tree, mm. and then there was a row of twelve pockets, and then twelve pockets, and a twi- and a and a twenty fifth one at the end. So so one, two, three, four through twelve, and then thirteen through uh, twenty five on the bottom. And in the little pockets were little ornaments. Yes. I, no, and, we had the same thing. Yeah, the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. And so you would get up on the morning of. Uh, December the 1st, you would get up and you would run into the den and you would take the the little ornament out of the first pocket. It would be on a ribbon and with a straight pin. And then you would pin the little, the little ornament onto the tree. And every day you did that, getting up and getting ready to go to school until it, around the 20th or 21st, you looked and your tree was almost full of ornaments. And it was this sign that we're almost here. We're almost here. And then the the, the last ornament, which you would get on Christmas Day, was in ours, was always a baby. It was, oh, a, ours baby was a Jesus. star.
0: Ours was a star. And was ours star. was not, ours wasn't nearly as Jesus y as yours. <laughs> Dang it.
1: <laughs> so, but that, but that was, a, but you know, that was a, it was a way, it was a wonderful way to build anticipation and to actually um, help us as children understand that christmas is not just a day when you get presents mm. but rather advent is a season that is meant to build up your excitement for what god is doing in the world through jesus um and um so i include I include that little anecdote in one of the chapters of the book because i i i think it's important when um we we live in a world where felt calendars with little plastic ornaments are not as exciting to kids as they were when you and I were growing up in the 1980s Tony I listen you know? we we used to set up the whole like who would go first
0: based off of who we thought like we would push people to go first because there, we always went in like birth order and then we had four kids too and so we're like okay if if Angie goes first then on the 20 then I get to do the star. You know what I mean? Like it was like we were like doing like serious strategic planning around who would do the star. And if somebody forgot, oh, man, all yeah. hell would break loose. Yeah. Uh, pun intended. <laughs> right. right. Uh, we do it now with my kids with chocolate advent calendars. That are store bought. Do, do you do an advent calendar with your kids? We,
1: we have one, but I when I was growing up, we each had our own. So there were these four, each one of us, ah. and my sister and I would race in to see who would could put their ornament on the tree first. And we were separated by a few years from my two older brothers. But but um, no, we we do have one now, but it's just one for for our three kids. We have three children, and we just have a single advent calendar. Um, so but no, I it seems like with a store bought one with chocolate, the the ornament. I mean. You just get to eat the chocolate. Is that what no, it is? So, so the kind of the way
0: it looks is it's like this big, like two foot white thing, and then you open up a door, and in the door is scripture, and then in uh, once you read the scripture, you get to eat the chocolate.
1: Oh, okay. okay.
0: And so eventually, what happens is you open up all the doors to the scripture of the um, the birth narrative, and that's kind of how you build the advent calendar the other way. So, I, okay. uh, I mean, it's not nearly as cool as the felt, but right. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> it seems like in the 1980s half of everything was made out of felt. <laughs> you just don't see a lot of felt these days.
0: True confession, when I was cleaning out the church here in Centerville, when we first got appointed, a lot of what needed to be done is just some good old fashioned housekeeping. And I I can't there was pro- I probably threw away enough felt to uh to cover the entire church on the outside. There was so (laughs) much felt. There was so much felt. That's great. Uh, uh, One of the things that you write about in the book is about Advent is both. um, Look, you said Advent looks both to the past and to the future. Yeah. Right. And I think it's easy to see how Advent gives a nod to the incarnation, which would be obviously the past, But help people understand the importance of advent to the future. And and you know, the other kind of theme is this idea of hope. And so and expectation. So talk to me about because I think, man, do I
1: feel like 2020 needs a little hope. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me let me get at that by by talking about the phrase itself, watching from the walls, because that is not a I mean, when you think about Christmas and even if you're familiar with the season of Advent, if you think about Advent, that phrase watching from the walls is not one that would probably immediately leap to mind. And Mm -mm. what that phrase is, is it's a a phrase that comes from the Old Testament and you see it. uh, You see the theme or the motif of the watchman on the walls all over the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms and also in the prophets. And so you can go to Isaiah or Ezekiel or Habakkuk, and you see this theme of the watchman. You can go to a number of different places in the Psalms as well and see it. And the idea was that uh, in the ancient world, cities had walls around them, and they did that for defensive reasons. Hmm. Um, You didn't know that an enemy was coming against you until their army appeared on the horizon. And so Um, you, if, if you didn't have walls, it would be too late at that point. So cities had walls and those walls had sentries or guards or watchmen that were posted on them and they were supposed to watch for anything coming over the horizon. There's also a sense at night, especially that the watchmen were watching for the coming of the dawn Mm. because at night you would, every night you would close your city gates because that was. You know, if if um, enemy spies were going to come in or if thieves were going to come in, then they would steal in by night, of course. And so you would shut the gates of the city at night and the watchmen would watch for the coming of the dawn because when the sun rose once again in the east, then you could open up the gates of the city and commerce could continue and travel and people could uh, go about their, their daily lives. And so that was the reality of what life was like and, and watchmen on the walls would have been as... Plain as the nose on your face to people back in the ancient world. Well, in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, and in the Prophets, uh, this motif of the watchman on the walls is employed in a very creative way to talk about the relationship of Israel and Israel's God. Mm. Because what did the what did the Jews experience time and time again? Well, they experienced falling away. They experienced. Exile. They experienced times of being estranged from God. When they were exiled, the great exile into the Babylonians, it wasn't God that was taken away from them. It was they they that were taken away. It was them that were taken away from God by being literally carried off away from Zion, away from the city of Jerusalem into the land of Babylon. But always in, in the prophets and in the Psalms, it always depicts the people as still being in their city, but God who has been taken away and the and the encouragement that's given is that the faithful are meant to stand as the watchmen on the walls who are watching for the coming of the Lord not the coming of the dawn but rather the coming of real dawn which was the, mm-hmm. the, the sun arising in the people's lives again because God has returned to them there's actually a passage in Isaiah chapter 62. Which suggests that not only should the watchman on the walls watch for the coming for God's return, for God to forgive and to be reunited with his people, but but it actually, in isaiah sixty two it it actually is encouraging those watchmen to pester God until he relents <laughs> uh, which is this, like like don't don't give him any, don't give him any slack. And this is what it says in verses six and seven on your walls o jerusalem i have set watchmen all the day and all the night they shall never be silent you who put the lord in remembrance take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth and mm-hmm. so when i when i read that you know to me what that communicates is that there is an expectation on the part of believers that they have an active role to play in serving as watchmen for the coming of God, that that that's not just that we're reading a story passively as people a couple of millennia later, but that, but that the story is living and active and that we indeed are meant to be active participants in it. Now you asked about what this has to do with Jesus well, we know that Jesus has come. That's what Christmas is about. Sure. It is Jesus' coming into the world, the incarnation. That is in our memory as believers. And what we're doing when we celebrate Christmas and we pull out our little nativity sets, you know, we have living nativities in our churches and yeah. we read the story from Luke chapter two every Christmas Eve. We are calling to mind, we are remembering that Christ has come. But we also know, Tony, that the work of Christ has not been completed. Yeah. We we know that Christ has promised to come again. That Christ is going to come back in victory and that the dead are going to rise and he is going to bring all things to completion. I mean, Jesus himself tells parables that allude to this fact in the gospels. The apostle Paul refers to it in a number of places very powerfully like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for example. The book of Revelation is all about this. And so in a certain sense, Advent is not only meant to be about remembering what Christ has done. Advent is also meant to look forward with hope and expectation with what Christ will do. And it's in that sense that we're called to be watchmen who are, in the tradition of Isaiah, pestering God until Christ returns again in glory. Oh, that'll
0: preach, man! I love that. <laughs> Come on with it. Um. Okay. So, look, as a pastor, and I know that I have the same feelings. Um. I'm always like, I want the the absolute best for my flock, right? I I want them to connect with Jesus at a deep personal level, and I hope just to stay out of the way enough to so that they can do that, right? Like, sure. Um. So, somebody who's listening right now who maybe has never leaned in to the tradition of advent before who's maybe never thought about it as arrive or come or never thought of themselves as a, as a a watchman before, what are a couple things that he or she can do to really maximize the, the 25 days of preparation before Christmas?
1: Yeah, that, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I, um, one of the reasons, the reason that I wrote the book in the way that I did, I, I start out each chapter with a passage of scripture. There, mm-hmm. it's right below the title of the of the of the chapter, is a passage of scripture uh, that pertains to what it is that I'm talking about in that chapter. So, there's a chapter on Mary, a chapter on Joseph, a chapter on Elizabeth, who is the mother of John the Baptist and Mary's cousin. Um, there's a chapter on the shepherds and a chapter on the wise men, and what, really the story of The birth of Christ is, we find it in two places in the Bible. One of them is the Gospel of Matthew, and one of them is the Gospel of Luke. And there are differences between the two. So Matthew tends to focus a little bit more on Joseph, on the figure of Joseph and Joseph's role in the Nativity of Jesus. And the Gospel of Luke very much focuses on the person of Mary and of her role. And I think that all believers uh, ought to, sorry, that's my phone uh, making little noises. Let me turn that off. No worries. Um, I think that all believers every year should go back and should read through Matthew and Luke. And I actually think that it helps if you don't read through it all in one setting. Mm. I think it helps if you break it up and read it slowly uh, and read it meditatively. Um, and um, and that's why I broke it up in the book the way that I did, so that we're so that we're actually not just reading it to say, well, we've gotten through that again this year, but actually reading it with some level of intentionality. And, and reading it in a prayerful way. So, I I mean, I think that's one thing I would always say that when we think about our practice of the means of grace, and particularly with seasons of the year, that we should go to those places in Scripture where um, whatever season of the year it is, is actually described to us. So, you know, when we get to the Pentecost, you got to go read the first couple of chapters of the book of Acts. Yeah. You know? When you get to Holy Week every year before Easter, you need to go back and and read the passion narratives in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the same thing with Advent. You need to go to to the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew and and read that again. Another thing that I would say, and I'm not going to claim to be an expert on this, Tony. Uh, Certainly, we struggle with it like any other parents do. But for parents of school-age children, uh, you need to uh, do what you can uh, to help your children understand this season of the year in terms of its spiritual significance, not just based on the excitement that they have at getting presents on Christmas morning. Mm. And, and you know we talked about the advent calendar. I mean that's a that's a great example of that. you know find, find ways of embracing traditions in your own family that will help your entire family really embrace the season for the deep and profound uh, uh, significance related to our salvation that it has to do with. I'll tell you one other story, and I'll tell this one in the book as well. When I was growing up, my grandparents, um, we would always go over there on, on Christmas morning. I grew up in a town called Paragould, and, and my grandparents lived in a lot bigger town called Jonesboro, about 20 miles to the south of us. And so we would get up on Christmas morning, we would open up presents, and then in about mid-morning, we would head down to Jonesboro to my grandparents'. Well then there was another round of you know gift opening at theirs with my aunt and my uncle were there and my grandparents and other family members. But before we could do anything, we we enacted a Christmas pageant where we would pull. I actually I never knew anybody else who did this growing up, but I have since learned that there are other families do this as well. Where okay. we 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 had costumes that we would pull out of the attic oh, on Christmas man. morning and there was a costume for Mary and a costume for Joseph, and there were costumes for the wise men with crowns, you know. And then there were shepherds costumes for the shepherds. And that sounds amazing. And I'm gonna need to see a picture. Yeah, well, and I'll tell you. So here's the thing about it: we would we we even had a, a, a costume for the innkeeper. You know, there was one person whose job it was to say, "I don't have any room for you, but you can stay in the stable," you know. And we actually in my grandparents' living room, we we actually had a play. Um, that we would, and and before we could get to any of the wrapping paper gift, you know, type elements of Christmas, we enacted the story, particularly from Luke chapter two. And, uh, somebody always got to be Mary and somebody got to be Joseph and, you know, we would trade parts year in and year out. Well, that stuck with us. And when we grew up and we all started having kids at my parents, we did the same thing. Oh, that's awesome. So now for close to, you know, f- probably 15 years or so, we, we've been doing that same Christmas pageant at, at my parents' house. And, you know, it takes it takes 10 or 15 minutes. It actually takes more time to get out the costumes and to divvy those up and to figure out who's going to play what part than it does to actually enact the play. But but what it does is, you know, it, th- the fact that we do it every single year and that we privilege that uh, ahead of actually unwrapping mm-hmm. presents is intended to give our children uh the message that there is a level of importance to what it is that we're doing when we gather on Christmas uh that is biblical and that is uh re- that is, you know, at the very heart of God's relationship with us in Jesus Christ. Um, and I it stuck with me with my grandparents doing it. And now my mom and dad have invited us to do that at their house. And and that's just, you know, things like that. You said, what what should we do to live into the season? It's stuff like that, you know. I mean, I mean, God wants us to delight in his son. And and delighting in his son is part of that is finding delightful ways to practice mm-hmm. our spirituality as Christian believers. So uh you
0: you've obviously been doing ministry a long time. You've taught at a lot of higher education places, you've studied this. Um, what are you gonna do this year to stay fresh in in preparation for the season of Advent? Any any new things, any old things that you dust off around this time of the year? I'm kind of I'm honestly this is a question is more for me. Like I feel like uh, I'm like to try something different. So what can I steal from you?
1: Okay. Well, I'm gonna give you a boring preacher answer. It may not be boring to you because you're also a preacher, but it may be boring to some of your listeners. So, and I'm not sure how applicable it is, but for me, um, one one of the things that I do every year is I try to figure out how I'm going to make the message fresh to my people. That's I the mean, hardest I, thing about, and I'm only yeah. into
0: this like seven years. Like I'm not even into this like 30 year. I, I mean, you're, you're probably at what, 20 years, 15 20, years. Spring? This, spring,
1: this spring, it'll be 20. Yeah. Okay. Spring, spring, it'll be 20. Um, yeah. And it, that's the thing. So it's, how do you make the message fresh? That's why I wrote watching from the walls. I mean, it's why That my friend, I tell the story in the introduction about my friend Alex Jackson and I, who came up with this idea over a decade ago. And it's who you dedicated the book to, Alex Jackson, right? Yes, yes. So this started out back when I was in graduate school over a decade ago. Alex was in ministry in Tennessee, and we would call each other up and talk about sermon series ideas. Mm. And we actually came up with this idea on Watching from the Walls together. Uh, a long time ago, and and I just pulled it out years later and dusted it off to to write a small group study uh, with the same theme. But it was like it it goes back, how do you make it fresh? How do you make it fresh? And this year, i'm um, I'm doing that again. I mean, i we will read the traditional passages related, but I'm not actually a lectionary preacher. so i I don't go to the revised common Lectionary to find out what I'm preaching each week. i sure. I find the lectionary to be, Personally, I, I I was a lectionary preacher at one time, but I, when I started getting into the idea of really trying to teach Christian doctrine, hmm. I found that the lectionary did not allow me to carry out sustained topical sermon series that would really allow me to get into doctrine on a multi-layered, uh, in a multi-layered way. So, um... So we'll look at the traditional Christmas stories but but thematically I try to go with something to to make it fresh each year and this year I'm going with a theme called healing from heaven. Okay. The idea that the the incarnation brings about the possibility of divine healing in our lives. And um I'm going back and I'm I'm reading Athanasius Athanasius was a church father, early church father in the 4th century. He has a very important treatise called On the Incarnation of the Word. And, um, and I'm going back and I'm reading that, uh, as a way to develop what I'm going to be preaching on for those four weeks of, of Advent. So that's how I'm doing it myself this year. I love it.
0: I love it, dude. Uh, okay. So I know my listeners are going to want to, uh, first of all, they may want to listen to that sermon series because it sounds incredible and they're going to want to follow you. What's the best way for them to connect with you on the interwebs?
1: Sure. Well, um, our church address or our church um, on, on on Facebook is just First Church Springdale. So if you look up, it's First United Methodist Church. If you just look up First Church Springdale, you can find our church's page and we post links to our live stream. So if anybody wants to watch, um, they can they can do that. Same thing on YouTube, all of our videos or we have our, our own channel on YouTube under First Church Springdale and we actually do sermon cuts there. So a, a, a 25 minute you know, sermon, uh, clips that you can, that you can look at in order, uh, on there. I'm on Twitter at the real Andrew, um, just at the real Andrew. Um, not to say that there are fake Andrews out there, but no, there probably are. I got on Twitter late enough to where all the good handles were taken. Uh-huh. So, and I couldn't, I couldn't do any combination of my first and last name because they're Andrew Thompson is way too common of a name. So you can follow me there. Um, I, uh, I guess I'll stop there. I, my website that I had for years is now defunct because I, I wasn't able to maintain it in the church that I'm at. So I just kind of let that go by the wayside. So uh, well, those would be wonderful. Facebook and Twitter would be the two best ways. I, I'm so thankful for your time today and your
0: generosity. The, the, the last question that I always love to ask people is, uh, is an advice question, right? And so I, I ask you to give yourself a piece of advice and, uh, I'm going to, Take you back to a very specific time and your very first time preaching Advent, right? Your very first church uh, as pastor. If you could go back and talk to that young preacher, young Andrew, what's the one piece of advice you're going to give him?
1: It's a great question. Um, My first appointment was in campus ministry, and so I didn't preach Advent there. Um, The first time I preached Advent would have been as an associate pastor um, uh, at a church where I served from 03 to 06. Um, I think my advice would be to... um, pay more attention to the older members of my congregation Mm. and and the wisdom that they had to share. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I I, I knew um, I was in a church where there were real saints. There were real living saints. And I recognized it at the time, but um, didn't recognize it enough. And a lot of those, a lot of those men and women have gone on to be with the Lord and I would give anything for another conversation with them.
0: Man, that feels especially on topic for 2020 and the amount of isolation that we're seeing in our older church family. And yeah. so uh, that's, that's probably going to be super convicting for a lot of us. Hmm. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for this incredible resource. Thank you for what you're doing for the local church. It, uh, it was so great to have you on the podcast.
1: Appreciate it, Tony. Blessings on you and your family and on your congregation uh, for this upcoming season. Um, I hope that the Holy Spirit visits y'all in a special way. And uh, it's great to connect with you. I appreciate the invitation. I loved the way Andrew talked about how Advent is about looking both
0: to the past and to the future. Such great preparation for the Feast of Christmas morning. The world really is holding its breath in preparation for what Jesus has to offer us. And I'm so excited to be on this journey with you. If you could, please do me a favor, share this episode. Let's get the word out about what God is doing through the podcast and through Andrew's writing. Go follow him on all the social medias and tell him how much you appreciated him being on the podcast. As always, don't forget the best compliment you can give us. Share this episode with a friend and leave a rating or review on iTunes. We're trying to get to 100 reviews by the end of the year. We need your help. 100 reviews. We can do it. Thank you guys so much. And I'm looking forward to celebrating the season of Advent with you.